takes people like you though to like explain how pro football really works. I mean, just I, I started covering the league like more on a day-to-day basis, like 2010, 2011. And from that point to today, I feel like I've just constantly learned something new. Uh, that I, You think you know how the NFL works behind the scenes and you really don't have a clue unless you're on the inside. And you were on the inside. I mean, you were negotiating contracts in Green Bay. I want to say from 99 to 2008, you were the uh, the vice president, right, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, my background, as some of you guys know, is uh... – you know, I've had this three chapter career, which I'm really sort of, I just sort of feel blessed all the time that I've lived my life in professional sports. Um, you know, to back it up all the ways, I'm not sure, you know, Tyler, I was a tennis player, um, at Stanford and I tried to play some pro tennis and my opponents convinced me I would better do something else with my life. So, uh, <laughs> I never knew that. Wow. Yeah. So what I did was I went to law school, um, and if I had gotten into Stanford Law School, I probably would have never left California, but I didn't get in, and I got into my hometown school. I'm from Washington, D.C., Georgetown, so came back home, Georgetown Law, but there was a big firm in D.C. called ProServe. It's no longer, but they represented, apropos for me, they represented a lot of tennis players, so I had my little hook to sort of walk in there and say, hey, I can help you guys out. I'm a law student. I played junior tennis. I ball boyed the pro tournament that you guys ran every year here in D.C. And that was my start. They gave me a shot. And so most of my law school career, I was interning at this sports management firm and then went to work for them after law school. And I was a tennis agent for a couple of years. And then I looked down the hall and there's a guy named David Falk. So David represented Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning and Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, all these great NBA players. And I got to work for him. But the real path for me, and I tell young people all the time, like find your little tributary that you can make a career. And what I saw was that we had a couple, not maybe two or three football players, NFL players, and David and his people were so busy with Michael and the basketball players, no one was paying attention to them. So look at me, I never played football, but I was a huge fan of the Washington Redskins growing up. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Here's my chance. I'm going to be a football agent. And I started representing these guys, no one you ever heard of. And Slowly over six years, we started developing a football practice. And that was my sort of time to become a well-known person, you know, an agent. So I was your standard football agent, recruiting, doing contracts, trying to get marketing, doing the handholding, et cetera. And then I was doing a contract with Mike Lynn, who was GM of the Vikings. And he looks at me after the negotiation. He says, Andrew, um, do you speak Barcelonan? And I said, is that Spanish? <laughs> he said, yeah, it turns out it's not. Um, <laughs> anyway, they were starting the new in NFL Europe. And he said, we're looking for young people to come over and run these teams. And how about Barcelona? And I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, any jobs in this country? <laughs> and he said, no, no, you want to go there. You want to go there. So I'm young and single. I didn't want to leave representing players, but I thought this could be cool. So I left at age 29 and became general manager of the Barcelona Dragons. And I had no coach, no players, no staff, moved to a country that didn't know the first thing about American football. And that was the hardest job of my life because there, first of all, I had to hire a coach. I didn't know who to hire. They said, well, you know, the NFL tells me you should interview these, these top assistants. A guy named Tony Dungy, um, a guy named Pete Carroll. You should talk to these guys. I said, okay. <laughs> so I talked to these guys. This is the early 90s. And they're like, hey, Andrew, this sounds really cool, but no freaking way. I'm not going to Spain. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. So in Boston, Jack Bicknell, coach of Boston College, just got fired. I go up, I meet him, I love him. I say, okay, you're my guy. You're going to coach the Barcelona Dragons. 
he says, hey, that's great. I just got it. I have a staff here that all got fired. And I, before he finished the sentence, I said, they're hired. <laughs> and he said, do you want to meet them? I'm like, no, I don't want to meet them. They're hired. Done. He said, I got video guys, trainers, equipments. Uh, I'm like, they're hired. You want to meet them? No, I don't want to meet them. Like, we got to move. We go to Florida. We have a thousand players, NFL cuts. I don't know who to pick. I ask people in the league who to pick. They tell me to pick. I pick 80 players. We have training camp in Winter Park, Florida for five days. And at the fifth day, I have to tell 40 of the 80 they can't come to Spain. Some were Spanish. So now we fly, we get on the plane, we arrive in Barcelona, we have put an NFL, not NFL, NFL Europe team together in nine days. <laughs> we have put a team together in nine days. We are now 10 days from opening night, Barcelona Dragons against London Monarchs. And our marketing guy over in Spain says to me, we have sold 173 tickets. And I said, how many is it old? 40,000. <laughs> I said, that's not good. He said, it's okay. In Spain, they walk up. They walk. I said, no, no, no. We got to sell tickets. So when I say this is the hardest job, I got the hardest meeting I ever got. You know, I'm in my 60s now. I was 30-something. I got the hardest meeting I ever got. I got a meeting with the president of Football Club Barcelona. And the night before our game, they had 100,000 people. We just wanted 15,000. That's all we were trying to get. So I meet this guy, and there's all these handlers around. And I say, listen, what do you do at halftime? And he says, what do you mean? What do you do at halftime? What do you mean? What do you do at halftime? What do you mean? I'm like, what do you do when the players go in before they come out again? And he actually looks at me and he says, we smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and I said, no, no. What do you do on the field? And he said, nothing. And then, you know, people are worried about the field. I said, listen, we're wear, we'll wear sneakers or socks. Can we run around, kick the ball, throw the ball, say tomorrow night? Montjuic Stadium, Barcelona Dragons. He's like, okay. So we did it. And the announcer said tomorrow night, and listen, that next night, first night, ABC television, we had 18,000 people walk through that door. And I, I mean, I probably gave out 5,000 tickets, but that was impressive. And then I had to worry about the product. Right. Then I'm like, we're not looking. We look like high school football out here. No score in the first half. We take the ball in the second half. We hit our tight end on a seam pattern. He breaks three tackles, touchdown. I'm jumping up and down. And the crowd is like polite golf applause. And then our kicker comes on and kicks that extra point, And they went nuts. <laughs> they went nuts. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I realized this went on for weeks. Like, they cheered at the wrong times. They did the wave the entire game long. They did the Olay song the entire game long. They had zero interest in football. I had a, a fan guy, committee guy, that said, I said, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And he kept coming to me and saying, Andrew, stop with the meetings. I said, what do you mean the meetings? He said, you run a play then you meet, then you play, then you meet, <laughs> stop meeting. I said, you mean like huddles, meetings, stop your meetings. So I go to the coach and I'm like, they don't want meetings. What are meetings? Huddles. Well, screw them. We run huddles. So this was the kind of thing that we dealt with. It was, I mean, I had to bribe customs to get our uniforms they're putting up the goalposts in the corners of the end zone. They ruined our laundry every time they did it. We could never get enough food. I'd order food for 70 and it was gone after 25 every night. They're like, that's so big. I'm like, yes. <laughs> they eat so much. Yes. 
food. So this was not your typical GM job. I was just trying to keep it together. You know, think about 21 to 26 year olds. And I have two kids that age, never out of the country. And now they're out of the country for four months. And they understood nothing on television, nothing in the newspaper, no internet. They, I mean, it was really touch and go with a couple of players. I was really worried. So I was really more psychologist than anything else. That was an experience. I did that two years and NFL Europe suspended. It came back later without Barcelona. All the other teams did great. Frankfurt, you know, they had American fan bases. Um, We struggled. And I just thought they never cared. It was a diversion. It was fun. It was just something they didn't care about American football. You know, why? (laughs) They're like, why? Why do we need to care about it? So I came back and I went back into the agent business a firm in Boston, Bob Wolf Associates, Bob had died and left a firm to his wife and she sold it to a big group out of Boston. They hired people to run the divisions and they hired me to run football and basketball. Those three years were really dominated by the best client I ever had. I had a kid who was a baseball player in the off seasons for the Philadelphia Phillies system He was a fullback in football from University of Texas at that time named Ricky Williams. (laughs) He was blocking for a guy named Priest Holmes. He never was much of a football player when I met him. And then, of course, he blew up and he becomes this incredible football star at a time where no players had dreadlocks, no players had marketing and college football. And he was the biggest thing out there. And I had him. And then he was going to go pro, and then he decided not to because he liked Austin. And then I stay with him that whole next year. I got all the big agents trying to squeeze him away. And he wins the Heisman Trophy, and I'm now I'm just you know traveling with a rock star. And I start to see these guys hanging around. I'm like, Rick, who are these guys? And he finally says, they work for Master P. And I said, who's Master P? He says, He's a rapper. I said, okay, what's going on? He says, I want to work with him. He's cool. I said, what about me? He goes, I want you to work with Master P, do the contracts. And I said, oh, okay. (laughs) I'm like, now I'm telling my wife, I'm going to go work for this guy, Master P. Because Rick's my guy. And if I go back to Boston without Ricky, I don't have a job. So anyway, this is what I'm doing. I'm getting ready to work for Master P because it's the, the client of my career is with him and he's going to pay me a lot of money. I'm going to do Ricky's deal and all these other players. And out of the blue, out of the blue at the exact same time, these are the serendipity things in life. The green Bay Packers are calling. Now I had had some clients over the years, no one any good. I had a third string quarterback at that time named Matt Hasselback. So Hasselback was there. And I say, listen, I'm tied up here with Master P and Ricky Williams. I can't talk about Hasselbeck. And they say, we're not calling about Hasselbeck. I said, why are you calling? And they said, listen, our coach, Mike Holmgren, just went to the Seattle Seahawks. I said, okay, (laughs) why are you calling me? They said, well, he took the guy named Reinfeldt who ran the whole business operation. He took him to Seattle. I said, okay, sorry to hear that. And they said, well, how'd you like to switch sides? And I said, Green Bay? <laughs> and they said, yeah. I said, well, listen, you deal with a hundred agents. Why, why are you calling me? And they said, you know, listen, uh, you have a nice way with Hasselbeck and those guys really like you and seem to know your way around the cap and contracts. And, you know, we want to get more agent friendly. And what better way than hire an agent? And now, I, you know, I'm now, I never thought I'd move to management that early in my career. I thought maybe be an agent five, 10 years longer, but I'm like, okay, I can go work with the Packers now. I, uh, 
and then the Ricky thing turned me off. You know, the guys like Ricky, they're going to fire you one time or another. And I liked him personally a lot, but just decided to get off that train of chasing players. And I moved to Green Bay by myself. My wife's a teacher. She didn't come till the end of the school year. And it was a unique experience. I mean, I was there almost 10 years. And I think the one thing that stands out to me about Green Bay, and I'm, I'm sure I've got some Packer fans here, is that there's I've been around a lot of sports teams. There's I don't think there's any sports team, high school, college, or pro, that wraps themselves around a franchise like that. Um. And I got to say, at the beginning of my time in Green Bay, I loved it. It was so cool. We're treated like royalty. This is just amazing, this little town. But by the end, it was kind of the reason I had to get out of there. <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> I could not, the walls close in pretty quick. You know, when I just felt like I couldn't go out of my house and talk about anything but the Packers. And I wanted something more diversity for my kids, just like not diversity ethnically and culturally, just stuff to talk about beyond the sports team. You know, it was just like, we got to get out of here. You, you have that feeling in life. I'm sure you guys have with some jobs where it's like, I got to get out of here. I just got to get out. And I understand I've, I've dealt with it the last and my third chapter of my career has been two things, media and academia, where I wanted to sort of pull back the curtain on the real world of sports for the media, for obviously viewers, listeners, readers, and then also for students. And I've been, it's taken a long time and a lot of work, but I've been able to create this niche in media and academia where I can do my thing uh, and provide what I hope is unique insight to people. But when I look at three chapters of my career, you know, I have four or five gigs right now and I'm the happiest because I think what everyone wants in life is some autonomy over their schedule and autonomy over what they do. And I guess the feeling I had at the Packers was what am I doing here? You know, staying late at night just because the coaches are working going to road trips, getting to the game three hours before, staying to the, after the game three hours, just because that's what you do. Um, and I felt the, the time was not well spent and I felt I was missing out on family time and more productive stuff. So I know, listen, I know everybody says, how could you leave an amazing, prestigious, high paying job with a legacy franchise? I get it. I understand that. And I've turned down jobs with other teams. Sometimes you just have to feel like, you know, you're doing something you really love. So anyway, Man. that's my life in a nutshell. And I'm, like I said, to start it, I've been so fortunate. I'm, I'm hit up by young people every week. How do I get into sports? How do I do this? How do I, and I'll give you some advice in this call, but um, I realize how fortunate I am. You know, this, Little kid from Washington, D.C., growing up a big Redskin fan and little tennis player, have has lived a great life in sports. And I realize that doesn't happen. You know, that's I'm very fortunate. That that was uh, an incredible rundown. I, I had no <laughs> idea on so much of that, Andrew. Holy, I can't think of harder turns in a career than Barcelona trying to make people care about a sport they have no clue about to master P and Ricky Williams. And, but did you listen to make him say, uh, that was, that was this big song, right? Did you research that one at all? I was such a average. Just a terrible guy. song. I had no idea what that was. You know? I was a short stay with the Charlotte Hornets too. I think, I think he tried to go yeah. NBA. Well, I feel for Ricky because he, he hired another guy to do the contract. As everyone knows, I think it's one of the worst contracts in history. It was just, unfortunate for rick and I, I listen he fired me i i have great i love the guy you know he was very i haven't come across a lot of athletes that i find more interesting than ricky williams um 
And by the way, I never saw marijuana. I saw a guy that was just friend group was way outside of football, interest levels way outside of football and smart. And uh, I'll say this, you know, Ricky, Ricky's mother and family took care of me financially when they, when they moved to Master P, you know, you don't find many players who do that to agents that they, they move on from. Man, and then Green Bay, you <laughs> dealt with, you know, I want to say like Brett Favre's $100 million contract. I'm thinking back to like Mike McKenzie contract, Javon Walker. You had some interesting deals you were working through then. I'm, I'm sure the Packer fans we have on here would love to uh, hear a story or two down those lines. What were some of the more difficult, colorful, animated contract negotiations that you had to work through there? Well, I think the, to describe my job, because I think a lot of people, you know, don't even know what the job is. I, I'm obviously, I did everything but coaching and scouting. And my primary role that I saw myself as was the center, the sort of fulcrum, the balance between the football side and the business side. So I'm kind of in both, right? I was business, I was football. In the business side, it's very long-term. You know, I'm working at that time with Bob Harlan, our exec committee, our board of directors. And like, what's our what's the cap going to look like in two, five, seven, ten years? What's our situation when Brett retires? What's our cash outlook? What are we bringing in from the pro shop, from the atrium? How's that going to affect our spending? So very long-term. On the football side, very short term, like, you know, Ted Thompson or Mike Ron Wolf saying, can we get this guy signed today? Can we have him on the field by practice? Can we have him on the field Sunday? And very immediate. So sometimes I'd have to say to the football side, like, no, no, I was the no guy. Like we've spent enough time, enough money on defensive line this year. We'll do it next year. And sometimes I was the voice of aggression to the business side where I'd say, you know what? I need another million dollars here. I want to make this happen. And one thing about the Packers, it is an enormous responsibility, right? No owner. I'm doing the player finance. That meant that I had total control. Whether I did a contract worth 10 million or 50 million, there was no one really to say, hey, good job or bad job. And when we had general managers like Ted Thompson, who was so invested in the scouting side, he just left it all to me. So I, I understood and appreciated that responsibility, but I made sure I was not awed by it. Like, I, I'm like, I got to respect this. And it's funny because we're meeting on the day of the Packers shareholders meeting and i i really felt like what would the shareholders want out of this contract when i did it like i had to feel like we're a public trust you know we've got this vast packer nation and um i always kept that in the back of my mind that makes for some happy owners they like they like hearing that <laughs> they, they've got they've got a say in there it's Last one for me, and then we'll just kind of, we just fire away, you know, uh, everybody just ask whatever questions you want, including Edmund out here barking at somebody. Um, but what was it like working with Ted? I mean, it, covering the team there at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel toward the end of his career, obviously he's not going to say anything to us. It, it got right. to the point of comedy. There was one time at the combine, he said, you know, I could be like George Costanza up here and be, <laughs> be the opposite of everything. <laughs> so he, he was funny. You could see. He had a sense of humor to him, but you're seeing yeah. Ted on the inside. What what was he like as a as a person that maybe nobody ever really saw at the podium? You know, Ted rest in, rest his soul. He was the like I said before, the ultimate scout. And some people are just in their element. He was in there in his element, standing on the sideline, bird dog and players, sitting in a dark room. College scouting was his thing. Um, you know, he. He was in some ways a hermit. You know, he lived on the river. <laughs> he was in bed, I think, by 8, 8.30. Um, and he came into the 
facility to use the the strength room, the the strength workout area at like five in the morning and did his laundry at the facility. Um, you know, he was very simple. <laughs> his life was very simple. Um, you know, the one thing that he lacked was a lot of communication skills with things like agents and players. And he deferred to us um, to really deal with that side of it. You know, when I say us, myself, more with the agents, but someone like a Reggie McKenzie or John Schneider or John Dorsey with the players, where um, whatever sort of player issues there would be, you know, it wasn't his strong suit. So he really deferred all that. And, um, but yeah, Tyler on the, on the media side, you know, and he would get on me because I'm, you know, I'm a little more open. Um, he just felt there was no benefit, no benefit to letting people in on what we're doing, even after a contract was done or something. Um, and I remember a couple of years they came to me and the NFL and said, any chance you guys would do hard knocks? And I would meet with him. And before I'd get to the word knocks, he was like, no, no. He saw absolutely no benefit to doing that. Uh, no benefit, only downside. So, yeah, he wanted the Packers. He wanted very little information out is one thing I remember about Ted. But we're going to talk, I mean, I'll tell the the Aaron story at some point to, in this hour because he never gets enough credit for Aaron. I mean, we had so many forces wanting to not draft Aaron Rodgers. And he stood in the face of that, you know, more than any one of us. It was, he doesn't get enough credit for that. What What went down? What was it like in those meetings? Well, I've told the story before about the, I don't know the meetings leading up to it because I wasn't in the scouting meetings, but that night was crazy because we had 18 players rated first round grade, you know, the the top line, first round, then second round, third round. We had 18 players that we thought were first round grades. We were picking 24 and two things happened that night. Number one, in the first 20 picks, 17 of the 18 were gone, <laughs> you know? So we wanted this guy, Marcus Spears, gone. We wanted DeMarcus Ware badly, gone. We wanted a linebacker named Derek Johnson, gone. Pac-Man Jones, gone. That happened. Then the other thing is no one's taken Rodgers. And he was supposed to be the first pick in the draft. And... <laughs> And it's becoming clear, like, oh, my God, it's going to be here. And you could feel the coaches start to combust because coaches are judged by immediate results. And they're just making noise and pulling me and saying, listen, Andrew, no way. No way. God, no, don't. Because if we take that kid, he won't help us this year. Maybe not next year. Maybe never. Maybe never. You know, we had the most durable quarterback in the history of the sport playing at a high level. Why would we take a quarterback? So there was a lot of heat in that room. And Ted just said what he always says, trust the board. Trust the board. The board is saying that's the player. That's it. We could have dipped down to our second round grade, took in a, taken a defensive lineman, but no. And even with that, Ted said to get, you know, he told me to get him on the line. I thought I was getting, I was calling Mike Sullivan, his agent, and someone answers. And I say, Mike? And he says, no, it's Aaron. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, Aaron, it's Andrew Brown with the Green Bay Packers. Can I talk to Mike? I'm like, and he's like, are you going to take him? Are you going to take him? I'm like, I feel for you, Mike. You know, he's had the family looking at him for five hours in that green room. He told me the caterers, this was before any changes the NFL did, the caterers had 
packed up the other tables, put the chairs on the other tables. They were standing there with their arms folded, tapping their feet, like, when is this guy going to leave so we can go home? And poor Aaron's sitting there, and I'm like, and Ted's instructions were just get him on, and it was 15 minutes at that time, and we'd just hold him for 12, 13 minutes, see if the phone rang. And I tell you, to swear to God, that phone never, ever rang. And if that phone rang, the NFL could be a lot different the past 15 years. It never rang. So we took him, and I just never forget the 20 seconds after we took him, because Brett called the coach, Sherman. Brett's agent, Bus Cook, called me, always screaming, what the F, what the F. And then we had a draft party at Lambeau Field. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Right under us, right under us, thousand people. And the booing in that room literally shook our souls. Literally. Like you heard it come through the, the, the floor, just booing <laughs> within seconds. And we're all looking at each other like, oh, my God, no one likes this pick. And poor Aaron, you know, coming to a place that's cold and he's never going to play. <laughs> you know. So and then I've talked about this many times, those three years, 2005 to eight. A, a part of my job was trying to manage that. So you had, you know, California cool coming into country Mississippi. And of course they did not get along. Um, and, and Brett's, you know, Brett's talking all the time, like, you know what it's like coming to work every day and sitting with your replacement. It sucks. And Aaron's camp is like, he's never going to play. You got to trade him. You know, he's never going to play there. So it was just that constant thing. And I know they went through that again the last three years. It had They had to because players want to play. And if you're a first rounder, you're going to play. It's just a question of when. So what people don't realize about running an NFL team is so much of it is personality and egos and trying to keep everyone happy when there's only so many, so much playing time. Um, it's harder in the NFL than any other sport because you have so many players and they all have agents and they all have families and they all have hangers on and they're all telling their players they, they're getting screwed. Um, so it was a tough job. That That's remarkable, man. Hey, if anybody has a question, just uh, let her rip here. Do you know why he fell so far? You have a theory. I don't. I mean, I think I, I think every year it's the same thing with a quarterback or two. Maybe it was Levy's this year because only so many teams really need a quarterback. It's not like defensive line or offensive line where you can always use one. Um, you know, you maybe you take a quarterback every year in the sixth round, but if you're going to spend high draft capital on a quarterback, it's hard to do especially when you got you took uh, one in the past couple of years or you've got an established veteran who's not 35 years old. You know, there's a lot of reasons. But I never, you know, he would tell us that John Gruden was fifth pick. Tampa told him to his face he'd take him. Of course he didn't. You know, these things happen. I will say this, Mike, he came in and, and we had a mini camp that Friday after the draft and um, he, t you know, he's running second team. He takes the uh, handoff and he rolls right and flicks at 65 yards or in the hands of Donald Driver. And we kind of look at each other, all the front office, like, oh, we're, we got something <laughs> like this is real. He became a favorite of all of us because he's just an easy guy to talk to and smart off the charts. And the thing that he, we saw with Aaron that they saw with Jordan Love this past couple of years is that 
you know, Brett went to Mississippi in the off season. Aaron stayed away the last two off seasons. That lets you see the guy. You know, we saw Aaron run the team for two off seasons. And we had Greg Jennings and James Jones, you know, coming up to the office like, hey, this guy's for real, like big time. And uh, they were doing that with Jordan the past two years, too. They were saying, you know, all those young players saying, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. So that's what happens when you feel like, okay, we can turn the keys over to this guy now. I remember, didn't, didn't Brett want Randy Moss in the worst way? Like, how real was all of that? And how close were you guys to considering trading Aaron Rodgers? Because those three years kind of felt like 30 years at times, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, I think the the Moss thing was, you know, I don't remember the Moss thing related in any way to Aaron Rodgers. I think he was kind of put up for sale by the Raiders and because uh, they had had enough of them and we looked into it and Brett pushed it but you know on the contract side I remember he was only going to do a one-year deal because he wanted to set himself up for a huge deal the next year and Ted wouldn't do a one-year deal you know we weren't going to do a one-year deal and set him up to go somewhere else um, we wanted two years even a big number in the second year and the Patriots gave him a one year and then the Patriots gave him a massive deal six months later. Uh, thanks for doing this, Andrew. Really appreciate it. I, I jokingly almost called you uh, Mr. Brandt in uh, honor of uh, Mr. Snyder uh, <laughs> eating the NFL uh, a week ago. Um, so on the, on the Packers, uh, it seems like they've been very prudent cap-wise for a long time, and I understand that you can move money around and, you know, you've written some good stuff about that, but it seems like they've become, in the last, like, I don't know, two or three years, not quite as prudent. Um, is that truly just pushing the chips and hoping it works out with Rodgers, or do you think it's a change in philosophy or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, Chris, I think, you know, I'm pretty conservative by nature, and I express that in the way I've handled the cap. I always believed in Cap management as pay as you go, and that really is trying to match cash and cap as much as possible. So, if you're playing a paying a player, say ten million dollars year one, and that's his cash, I'd try to get the cap as close to that as I can. What these crazy teams like those Saints and Rams do all the time is minimum out the salary and bonus out everything else, so they can get as low a cap in the first year as possible and push out the problems to later. I just saw that not work from my experience. So I did. So I was very hesitant to go to Brett's, which was obviously the biggest contract. And what we say in the industry called touch it every year. And when you touch it, you basically bonus out a big salary, turn it into prorated signing bonus. So you have a low cap and you push out all that proration into future years. It's going to hit you later. So, yes, I didn't do much of it. And Reinfeld, our, our history of the Packers wasn't doing much of it. My successor wasn't doing much of it. But as you rightly point out, they've been doing a lot of it in the past couple of years. And I think this is this whole, whatever happened to the Packers with Aaron over the last three years, I don't know what it is because obviously they took Jordan Love to replace him. But I think that COVID year when Aaron was MVP, Everything changed. I think the Packers went to a win-now philosophy and pushed all the chips to the middle. The contract they gave Aaron in 2022 is very unpacker-like, giving him total control um, at a massive number. So I don't know. I'm not there. I think they just decided from 20 to 23 were their, was their window as Aaron uh faded away you know it was going to fade away after that so they're paying for it now i mean aaron has the biggest cap number on the team by far it's the biggest cap number in history for a player not on a roster 40 plus million dollars um and as you noted he's not the only one you know they pushed out money on 
a lot of players in the past couple of years. So we'll see. I mean, they've got a really young and cheap team. They may be the uh, lowest payroll in the league this year. Andrew, what would you have done that 2022 offseason with Aaron Rodgers? I wouldn't have tried very hard not to not to have it uh, hit the way it is hitting in 2023. So what does that mean? Um, load up more in 2022 and have, an, have a way to get out without this dead money. In other words, pay a huge salary last year, keep the dead money as light as possible because you know he's going to make a decision. Now, the Packers are extremely fortunate. They got out from under this contract on a cash basis, right? They didn't get out from under it cap-wise. And I always tell people cap and cash are two completely different things. So I'm, you know, I'm doing my business of football hall of fame column for Sports Illustrated. And the Packers are in the in the conversation this year as the team because they offloaded a hundred million dollars on a player that was never going to play for them. You know, that's a massive win. Forget about all the draft compensation they got back from the Jets. They got rid of a $100 million obligation. Uh, and he was never going to play there, ever. <laughs> right? So that's a real win. If only that FaceTime was working. He's Aaron's the real victim here, Andrew. <laughs> don't you forget it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm obviously mixed. You've followed, you guys follow me on Twitter during games and stuff. I'm an unabashed fanboy of Aaron Rodgers. And that comes from being there three years when he was even a backup and we saw it. Um, you know, in terms of his personality, you know, when I when I knew Aaron Rodgers, he was a backup. He was a kid. He was babysitting my kids. He was dating a local girl in Green Bay. Um, you know, now he's just a different person. He's and I'm not saying good or bad. He's a star. He's a list. He dates movie stars and models. And he's, you know, maybe the the best known player in football. Um, so. I don't cast any uh, aspersions on what he's become. I just think he's still got an incredible uh, sort of sense of not taking things too seriously. Uh, I've never seen such situational awareness on the field. I don't, I don't know if it's just him or why no one else can do the things, the simple things, right? The offsides, the getting 12 men on the field, free five yards, easy. Anytime he wants it. And it doesn't sound hard, but hardly any other quarterbacks ever ever have done it with any regularity. So I'm I'm an unabashed fan of his game. Andrew, can you kind of talk about there we go? Uh Andrew, can you kind of talk about um again you were talking touch touching base when you were with the Packers and and Ted and whatnot? Can you kind of talk about the tough decisions and maybe sometimes it wasn't just because maybe it was a Packer away with letting guys go before it was too late. Like whether that's Aaron Campman or Nick Barnett or Mike Daniels or, you know, on and on and on, obviously after you with Jordy Nelson and all that kind of stuff. But can you just kind of talk about those decisions and, or was it just like, this is what we do and this is who we are? Yeah. I mean, I think it's not so much a hard and fast rule with every older player. It just always, you get back to the Packers philosophy, which is, draft and develop and avoid free agency. It's It's been ingrained in there for 30 years. And if you're drafting and developing, you have to play them, right? So whoever was coming up behind Nick and Aaron Campman and Jordy Nelson, whatever, it's like we're getting them on the field, you know? And it's it's crazy to me every year when when the Packers suffer an injury, these pundits start putting out, oh, maybe they'll sign like Odell Beckham or they'll sign Terrell Owens or those. I'm like, what Packers do you not understand? <laughs> like they're the last team in the world that would sign an old veteran name receiver when they have young receivers coming up. It's just not that way. I was shocked they signed Sammy Watkins. So this is just the way they are. And young 
I mean, I guess you could say part of it is cheap, but I think it's even less about the money. It's just the pipeline of young talent is what they care about. And when we interviewed head coaches, a key question was, are you unafraid to play young players? You know, and when we hired Mike McCarthy, he's like, you know, he bought in. Like, that's it. We're going to do that. And a lot of coaches are not into that. A lot of coaches want their security blankets, which are basically players that have been there before. Um, so it's a philosophy, not less about the names that have been let go than more about the names coming up. And I, it's what I said about Aaron and Jordan. I said, the Aaron Rodgers decision is not about Aaron Rodgers. It's about Jordan Love. And that's the way you have to look at it. I got a question for you, Andrew. Uh, you, you've talked a, a couple times lately about um, about, uh, I, about a couple of sports teams that have been invested in by uh, public equity groups, stuff like that. If if that became more of a thing in the NFL, what are some of the things that the NFL would need to do to preserve the game? You know, to make sure these guys didn't make rule changes like getting rid of the meetings <laughs> that just completely changes what the game actually is, you know? You mean if private equity and Saudi money came in? Yeah. 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 W- w- wherever it may be, you know, they're, they're just out for looking, they're just looking at their own profit. So, yeah. You know, and their yeah. yeah. Well, the NFL and the NBA and major league baseball and hockey, even with allowing some of that as the NBA does now with sovereign wealth funds, they're very clear that it's a maximum of 30% of institutional money and 20% maximum from any one firm or fund. And that to me is a model for all sports. Like there, as I keep saying, they're going to need the money because you're not going to have people paying $6 billion without significant capital investment. So I think the PE rules are going to be changed. I don't know if we're ever going to get to allowing the Saudis, but um, it's going to be limit, right? So PE money can come in up to 20% or 30% total, 20% from any individual firm. But the NFL is an antiquated and is always going to be in this, you know, one owner at the table, big meetings, big name. And I don't think that's going to change but I do think they'll need the institutional money. Because I've talked about this, you may have heard me talk about being from DC. I know people that were approached by Josh Harris to invest in the Mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. And they're basically, the guy's calling me on a Zoom call like this and say, I'm looking at this paper. And basically they want a hundred million to $200 million. And all I get is good tickets. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> but what you get is when it sells for $12 billion in 20 years, you get that, right? <laughs> that's what you're getting. Um, so, you, you know, it's it's hard, even as someone who's an expert in the business of sports, it's hard for me to comprehend how much money $6 billion is for a sports franchise. You think about all the people that have to put in Nine and 10 figures. I mean, that's extraordinary money. Um, And that's where it's going. You know, the most hated owner in sports got that money. (laughs) It's it's extraordinary. Um, You know, obviously he's reviled and he's disgraced, but what a what a massive win. What did you do when you first found out about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, I've been saying, I'll believe it when I see it with Snyder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and he finally did. I just took a deep breath. And, you know, my fram- family that's disenfranchised from this team <laughs> all called <laughs> up and they're celebrating. And there's, there was parades. There was, a, what was it called? My brother went to a Burgundy and sold 
party. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're rejoicing. I mean, Josh Harris, he's the luckiest owner. Be, well, he paid six billion, but he's got a starving fan base. You know, it'd be like if someone turned off Packer fans for years and years. That's a great way to put it. Man, they've just been tortured for for an entire generation. I know, and I grew up with the, the glory of Joe Gibbs and Joe Theismann and John Riggins. And I was, uh, you know, I only knew success. And they've been tortured, yeah. Hey, anything else uh, for, for Andrew here? You've been unbelievable with your time, Andrew. Thanks so much for sharing all your insight. Yeah, hey, Andrew, I have it quick uh, sports law question for you. So if you ever write a sort of all of infamy column, I think my alma mater at Northwestern probably is in contention for that role. Uh, but I'm curious, um, you know, obviously the coach's dismissal is now going into litigation. Um, found out a lot in a series of new complaints today. Um, I'm curious whether you think this ultimately ends up like closer to the, you get nothing, you're fired for cause or the, we're going to end up paying you your entire deal uh, or whether it's, we don't know enough yet and need to let the discovery process play out. But curious how you see the leverage here and what you yeah. might forecast. Yeah. I mean, the dribs and drabs of the hazing keep coming out and I saw something even a couple hours ago and that's unfortunate. So I don't know how that's going to factor in to Fitzgerald's deal, but my initial reaction to the Fitzgerald firing was that, he's got a, a pretty decent legal case because he had a two week suspension and that suspension came after a legal investigation, which was self brought by Northwestern. So in other words, Northwestern president hired a law firm, did an internal investigation, came out with two weeks. Then the media storm hit. And of course it was, it was a firing. And it seems like a firing for cause and no more payments on the contract. So if, and then of course, Fitzgerald hired Winston and Strawn, a big law firm in Chicago, and he's going for the, for the jugular with Northwestern. Looking at it from afar as a lawyer, it just seems like he's got a case because what exactly changed from a two week suspension to termination? What was so bad beyond the media storm and Twitter and everything else? that was blasting this president for not doing enough. Um, to me, that's a big question. And they're going to have to come up with the difference between what was found out to give him two weeks and was found out to give him termination. It's got to be a massive amount of information in my mind. So if you, I had to say, I would think that Fitzgerald definitely doesn't come away with nothing and comes away probably closer to getting all of it than getting nothing. Kind of related, real quick, Andrew. I mean, today the news here in Buffalo, Naeem Hines. Yeah. Um, I just was hanging out with him at 9-11 Tavern, actually, eating chicken wings <laughs> for three hours. We're just going to write a story that is going to be a different story now. Um, Man, it's so, well, you know, it's, it's so sad. It's Javon Walker, you mentioned before, I got a call one off season this time of year, <laughs> some guy in Jersey. Like, yeah, I just saw your player on a fall off a jet ski. He's bleeding. I'm like, who is this? <laughs> oh, it's Joe Blow. I'm from New Jersey. I'm in Cancun. <laughs> and I'm like, is this for real? So I call his agent his agent doesn't know what's going on. His agent calls, oh, yeah, he's in the hospital, but he's fine. Fell off a jet ski. So that was my first thought. But this poor kid, Hines, who I, you know, I talk about the uh, the technical term is not non-football injury. So if he's placed on NFI, which he will be, uh, a non-football injury, the Bills have the option of paying zero. So they can pay anywhere from zero to his scheduled salary. Um, I think they'll pay it because they don't want players looking at them and agents like, are you screwing this kid for sitting on a jet ski? 
and allegedly he's just sitting there and somebody rammed into him. Um, but yeah, this is so unfortunate when you have these off-season injuries. And what are they probably reporting like tomorrow, right? Or something. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. His last day of freedom, he gets hit like that. But yeah, NFI is a touchy situation. I've had a couple of players in my day where motorcycle accident, you know, and I'm basically saying we're not paying. The agent makes a stink. You know, then you use it as I did for leverage where, okay, we'll pay him, but we want an extra year on the contract or something like that. Um, I had one player, by the way, I can't, I can't mention his name, well-known player who went to Vegas in the off season or outside Vegas, somewhere in Nevada, and somehow got into like boulder lifting, like strongman stuff. And of course he wrenched his back and I'm like, we're not paying him. You know, he shouldn't be doing strongman stuff out there. So, yeah, we had a big fight and all that stuff. And luckily, he was better by the second or third week this season. But these are the little things that come up because what's so – football's got the longest offseason in all the sports. And every player's got his guru, right? He's got his his masseuse or his trainer or, you know, he's got his whole team. And usually they differ from what – the strength conditioning staff at the team wants them to do. So this is an issue now. And we saw it play out with Brady and, and his guy Guerrero where Belichick's like, come on, Tom, just stop. You know, Tom's bringing the guy in and he's ignoring the strength conditioning people at the Patriots and Edelman and Gronk are going to Tom's guy. You know, it becomes an issue. But if you're a superstar, what are you going to do? You know, LeBron's got his own people. Uh, Russell Wilson's got his own people. He doesn't use the Broncos strength and conditioning. So this is what, you know, the star mentality is coming to. Aaron's got his people. Um, I think that's kind of an underrated thing. Like, how do you control some of that? That's a good point. And plus, it's a long offseason, like you said. These guys have interests outside of football. You can't tell them stay in a room and read a book for the next two months or whatever. I mean, I Naeem Hines was telling me that he likes wake surfing and snowboarding and hiking. He did say, he goes, I haven't snowboarded in a long time because I can't and it, because of my contract situation and all of that. So he was aware of, um, you know, getting hurt potentially in this other activities. But I, yeah, you're right. I imagine it's a case by case basis when you're the team, like, Okay, how how outlandish is this injury? And then that's how much we will or will not pay. Yeah. I mean, one thing that my job, it was hard, and I, I, I don't miss it at all, but I just had to keep relationships going with agents because you never know when something like that's going to happen. So when I'm taking a road trip to Detroit or Denver or, D or Dallas or Minnesota, I didn't have anything to do on Saturday night, right? So I'd look up, you know, a big time agent in that city and have a drink or have a dinner just because you never know, you know, when you're going to need that relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, agents are the gateway to those players. So you got to sort of be on their side. Man. Andrew Brandt, you were phenomenal. Thank you so much for hanging out on a Monday night like this and your family for letting you hang out on a Monday night like this. We're, we're very grateful that you took the time. No worries, guys. I think you guys all know me, but just so you have all my channels, I, I have the uh, sports illustrated column. I have the business of sports podcast. I have the newsletter. You sign up at Andrew-Brandt.com. I do these reels on topics. Like I just did a Heinz reel. Uh, on Instagram, Andrew Brandt too. And uh, I think that's it. Sports Business League, if you want to get even more of me. Everybody, sign up ASAP. You'll be smarter for it. I love your website too. I think you've got like the audio player right on there too. So yeah. you can read it. You can listen. Obviously, we're all on Instagram. So we'll uh, we'll check it all out. Thank you oh, so and, much, and, Andrew. And I have a day job too. <laughs> I oh, yeah, we didn't talk. 
<laughs> right at Villanova University. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, run a sports law business program there, which is uh, which is great. And the best part of academia is there's no academia for four months in the summer. So <laughs> I have that time off from that. So uh, thanks, Tyler. And thanks to you guys. Really enjoyed really some good questions. Thank you. Hey, thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. You yeah. guys. Thank you very much.